In today's episode of the Iman Wire podcast. This ideal that um, we would stand with women of faith or women of no faith on the rights of protecting women in this country, on, you know, saying no to sexual assault, no to a rape culture, no to that we are that we should be paid less than men or experience less health care or let no. It, it's a matter of saying, I'm saying I stand with you on these issues because they're not, they're, they're Muslim issues, right? They're, they're Muslim concerns and they're concerns for me as a woman. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created me as a woman and I feel like who best to provide solutions to the problem than a Muslim. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Iman Wire podcast. Salim joined by my co-host Ghaidar. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. How you doing? Alhamdulillah. We're, uh, we're very happy to be back and uh, we're happy to uh, introduce uh, um, our guest today, uh, Ustada Aisha Prime. Ustada Prime is a, a traditionally Islamically trained uh, educator, activist. She studied Arabic and Quran and Islamic studies uh, in many places, including the Muslim world, Egypt, uh, in Hadramaut in Yemen. Um, she is uh, um, also the executive director of uh, Baraka Inc., which is a community-based organization for the empowerment of youth and women. And I'd like to welcome Ustada Aisha Prime to the podcast. Assalamualaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you for having me. Alhamdulillah. I have to say, actually, that you're probably also, number one, we've been trying to get you on the podcast for, for a long time, uh, and we're really happy to, to have you on the show. And you're probably, you probably have the coolest name of any of our guests because anytime I tell anybody, uh, I've told anybody, oh yeah, we're going to Aisha Prime, they're like, that name is epic. That is like the most awesome name I've ever heard. So Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Um, so I think to begin, uh, said, uh, uh, I think our listeners, uh, as a form of introduction, would like to, to hear a little bit about your spiritual journey in terms of uh, your scholarship because, uh, mashallah, you've... You've studied at several places throughout the Muslim world with uh, traditional uh, traditional ulama. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how that is also at the end informing what you're doing today um, in Baraka Inc. And, and your other forms. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually came into Islam as a student where uh, I was a youth ambassador, you know, sent to study Islam in Morocco and Senegal. And both of those places, is, you know, as you know, have very spiritual uh roots. And so I lived with a Muslim family in Senegal and they just kind of, you know, really guided me. So when I came back, I, I just missed them so much. I began studying Islam in America. Um, that eventually led me to a teacher and that one-on-one -on -one interaction with her, may Allah bless her, she just she just really took her time in terms of guiding me and um, really taking me through the Quran specifically and through the seerah. So one day she pretty much announced, and I'm, I'm giving the short version, of course, she announced she was moving back to Egypt. And so for me, it was like, well, I guess I'm moving to Egypt. <laughs> that was um, because I needed to, you know, I needed her in my life. I needed that uh, relationship. So in moving to Egypt, she really just kind of guided me to say, well, in order to further our studies and for you to have a more in-depth understanding I'd like for you to, you know, she's kind of encouraged me towards studying Arabic. So long story short, uh, I joined a, the Fajr Center in Cairo, which was actually in Maadi. Um, at the Fajr Center at that time, alhamdulillah, the, the Arabic program 
was awesome. But also they had this wonderful teacher by the name of Aisha who also began teaching me Quran on the side. And she had several ijazas in Quran. And she was wonderful. So then I started learning uh, Quran. Then I joined an institute. She said, let's go to the next the next level. So that started some of my Quranic studies. Then um, on the guidance of my same teacher who was present, I actually started studying with some of the top students of Sheikh Nuh, who I didn't know at the time was who Sheikh Nuh, you know, I didn't know the Sheikh Nuh at the time. So uh, for our I listeners, we're talking about Sheikh Nuh Keller. Yes, That's yes, Sheikh Nuh Hamim Keller. So um, I actually started studying Hadith with them, Sahih Bukhari, uh, with them. And long story short, Sheikh Nuh came. Um, you know, basically we're getting ready. The teacher was coming. And so he came and while he was there, he actually asked me, um, we were going to go on a ziyarah to visit Imam Shafi. So at that time, my teacher had been very careful because she knew my background. So she had been very careful to kind of ease me into the teskia to solve conversation. But I was still, um, I was still not familiar. Like we, I, I had studied Sirah, we had studied Quran, we had studied Aqidah, we, but she was really very gentle in that process. I think about that. And so um, when we were on this ziyarah with Sheikh Noah, I just had like a thousand questions. And so when it was over, he's, you know, he just asked me, you know, do you have any questions? Is there anything you, you want to talk about? And I was like, boy, do I. <laughs> and so I just, you know, um, just one after the other, may Allah bless him and his wife, that they were very gentle and very patient in answering all of my questions and providing a lot of proof. And so for long, you know, long story short, that kind of began to set me on my journey. So the next thing was, is that my sister, um, my sister friend, who was my teacher in Egypt, she then pulled me into a room and showed me a video of Habib Omar. And I just got it. I was like, I'm okay. How do I get there? Um, and so then that kind of began to take some of my studies. That's how I ended up moving and going to Hadramaut to Yemen and joining Dar Zahra and started studying there and also studying privately with some of the teachers outside of Dar Zahra, including uh, Ustad Najib Hayan and from the UK. And Alhamdulillah. That, that's really, uh, I mean, um, we were talking offline that, you know, you're from Jacksonville, Florida. I mean, and to go from Jacksonville to Hadramaut, I yeah. mean, <laughs> those of you, those those of our listeners who have been to or studied in Yemen know it's it's a quite different um, environment than, say, even in studying in, say, uh, Syria or Egypt. Absolutely. Uh, it's very rough and tough. Um, talk a little bit about that and how that was. And and, um, and you were there for, for quite a long time, right? Yeah, yeah I was about yeah, to ask you how many that. years collectively have you spent? so collectively it's probably about two and a half years collectively um that in in Hadramaut. then my time in egypt wow i'm not even like collectively we're talking prop i mean we're talking total about seven years just oh, kind shallow. of yeah so subhanallah this was my relationship between egypt and, and Hadramaut would be i would stay for a period of time of course come back to my family in america then go back for a period of time and come back to my family, um, and then continuing also my studies one-on-one uh, -on -one with, with some of my teachers. Alhamdulillah. As you, going back to your original question about the stark difference between Jacksonville, Florida, and Hadramaut, for sure. But, you know, 
Allah prepares you in a way that um, you don't know that you're being prepared initially. Like, for example, when I went to Senegal, you know, I wasn't Muslim at that time. And so just being in that environment, Allah was setting my path, you know. Um, and it, it would be less than a year, actually, after my return from Senegal that I would convert to Islam. And then, you know, I, I, I do feel personally that I was I was taken step by step. I was taken slow. Like even my time, you know, even in Egypt, Egypt is even a different culture than, than living in America. So you you go through moments of cultural shock. But by the so by the time I had gotten to Yemen, I was so in love with with Elm and particular with the with the Halayab and so in love with just what was being offered. It it didn't matter. It, it didn't matter. And so and someone would always say, you know, Ustad Najiba, may Allah bless her, would always say that if you don't have a sheikh, the streets of Tarim will be your sheikh. And so that's what it was like. There were so many lessons. And the terrain itself honestly just made you feel like you were inside of a Ciro book. You just felt like you lived inside of this bubble and, and got to experience things in a very authentic way. And what I loved most about it was there weren't many distractions. And so as a result of that, of not having those distractions like the mall and the movies and the this and the that, you know what you're there for and you're able to kind of concentrate on that in this this crucible, right? You're just able to just like get laser focused. And, and, um, and as a result, it's almost like without those barriers of distractions, your absorption is a lot faster and I think a lot more um, just, just pure because you don't have all those distractions. A lot of people that they may not be able to go abroad to study. Uh, do you think it's possible for them to study like locally, say here in the United States, and be able to get that same benefit because the, there's so many distractions living here? You know, it's it's quite a challenge. Even if you're say immersed in a seminary, how would you how would you say that now? Like for for people who are trying to study here, like what what they can do for that? Mm, okay, so your question is two part. You know, one of them is. You know, is there a chance? Is it okay for them to study? Is it possible for them to study and get benefit um, being in, you know, being in America or being in the West with those distractions? I, and my thing for that is give them hope. Like, of course, <laughs> right? Of course, there's, there's, you know, there's that chance. In, in some cases, it might be easier um, because, again, it, it you know, not having those distractions, not having the comforts of home many times can create a, a sense of unrest if you're not, you know, it depends on who you are. So to be honest with you, being able to study without um, without the strain of that that deep sense of homesickness can't, it does has it it does have its benefits. I, I have pages from my notes of like tears, you know, in class where, you know, just from missing home and missing my family, but you know, saying this is what I'm here for, this is what I'm here to do. But you know, so I do think it's possible. And what we didn't have, I remember when I first went to Tarim, when I went to the travel agent, which tells you there was no travelocity, there was no, you know, Expedia. When I first went, me and the travel agent kind of sat down and pulled out this map. And Tanim wasn't even on the map, right? So we were trying to map this path for how I was going to get there. And so um, a lot of people are just not prepared for that level 
Well, it's, I mean, it, uh, I mean, it's it's very very difficult to follow the path that you are on to to go to those places and just the the immersing yourself in Islamic sacred knowledge is a very difficult path in itself. There's nothing easy about it, you know. Allah is so kind, you know. He he left us like, you know, Sidi Yahya, Sheikh Abdul Karim Yahya. You've got Imam Ami Muhammad. You know, you've got a lot of people who went and studied, you know. Even if we look at the likes of Imam Zaid, you know, who, who studied in Syria at the time. You know, we've got um, Sheikh Hamza Abdul Malik. You've got a lot of people who've come from those, who went, you know, got the knowledge and brought it back. And so Allah just opened the doors and opened the paths through them, by which it's not necessarily necessary to do that. You just have to find a, a good teacher, you know, and alhamdulillah, in the days of the Internet, I mean, there's so much more accessible to us. A lot of them now, like uh, Habib Abedullah al will be here in a couple of weeks, inshallah, in about 10 days. Um, you've, you know, so it's there. Allah has made a way, has facilitated a way where those teachers are able to come to us and we're able to benefit from them. So alhamdulillah for, you know, the fact that Allah is latif and made that, you know, easier for people. So speaking of teachers, uh, one thing in, in hearing your story was that you um, you had access to uh, some very blessed women teachers. Um, and this is, um, you know, a very big topic uh, these days. You know, just a, as, a, as a point of reference, I think a lot of a lot of a lot of us first saw you um, a year ago, actually, um, uh, just after the inauguration, the the women's march, and you spoke at the women's march, and that was a lot of a lot of people first saw you speaking there. Um, right now, what we're seeing in, in in the community today is a very a polarized discourse about the topic of women and feminism to the point where. Uh, if uh, someone is considered or, or is labeled as a feminist, it implies that they have no interest or adherence to the traditional uh, Islam. Mm. Uh, and on the other side, then those who are criticizing feminism, it's assumed that they uh, have no interest or uh, in women's empowerment or women's rights. So there's not really much of like a middle ground in a lot of the discourse that's that that, that we're currently seeing. So uh, it'd be interesting to hear some of your experiences and thoughts about this. Um, you know, especially as you spoke at the uh, at that that women's march, uh, and just to hear what what um, you know what 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 you think could be perhaps a middle ground, or uh, what do you think is is a solution to some of this polarization that we're seeing? Well, the first thing is we have to seek refuge in Allah from anything that attempts to divide us, right? Because ultimately, I I believe that the activists and the scholars and those who are fighting for women's rights. It, are, I think ultimately what they're looking for is for women to be elevated above the status that they're currently in, right? Above the state that they're currently in. And so when we look at the concept of feminism and Muslims who have attached themselves to feminism or even the term like Islamic feminism, I think more or less what they're what they're talking about is the empowerment of women, making sure that women are given their proper rights. I think that they're making sure that our young girls are raised with an understanding that they are valid in society and that they have a valid place in this deen. Me personally, I don't uh, ascribe to the the, the I don't ascribe to the philosophy of feminism, and the reason is because. 
of when we look into the text about feminism as it relates to gender identity being a, being a construct, right? Something that's constructed. And so what I find in the Quran when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, خَلَقًا insan مِنْ نَفْسٍ wahida, right? That I created them from one essence. And, you know, this is something I mentioned um, recently at RIS. So first in understanding that Allah created us from this one essence, that we were one soul. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, before mentioning that the, the reason and purpose for creating that soul was so that it would be Khalifa on the earth. And so it would, in order to be Khalifa, the representative of Allah, it would have the Jamali and the Jalali traits. And then Allah says, then he split them, right? And from them, they became men and women. So women carried the Jalali traits and um, uh, women carried the Jamali traits, excuse me, and men carried the Jalali traits. And so from this, what we understand from the beginning is that my soul is a woman, right? And so in so this concept of, of gender being a, a construct is not an Islamic concept um, because then from that, my essence being a woman and then that be from it's not just about my womb it's even every every piece of my biology even when we you know you can read a book called brain wars even the development of my brain is is a feminine brain so you know all of that before that which we would just we have reduced femininity which is a problem for me on on both sides of the argument that we have reduced femininity to body organs and there, there's a problem in that um, or or basically some kind of forced social roles. And so when feminism brings up the argument about gender construct, that's because of from a Quranic perspective. And I, that's why I have to disagree on that point. Um, in, in addition to there's some, you know, social, social political issues I disagree with. First, there was just feminism and then you know, because of some of its undertones of, of uh, racism, then they had to develop black feminism. And then even within that, you know, it kind of left behind it. It, it to me, it didn't um, bring up African-American men and kind of address their struggle alongside with us. And there are some problems within that. But, you know, when we get to the Women's March. Someone would say, well, if you're not a feminist, then why in the world would you have spoken at the Women's March? And it's very simple because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has called me to enjoin the good and to forbid the evil. And when we look at one of, you know, when we look at number 45, you know, holding one of the highest political positions or, you know, seemingly the most powerful position possibly in the world today, who has openly you know, said that he has committed acts of, of sexual assault when before that and after that we saw the rise of gang rape, when we see the level of assault against the vulnerabilities of women, when we look at, of course, the unequal pay, when we look at the unequal health care, when we look at in terms of housing and education, um, when a U.S. study recently, just in 2017, uh, proved that even young girls today still believe that boys are more intelligent, right? So we have a we have a cultural problem um, as it relates to the assault of women mentally, physically, financially, edu- you know, we just have an assault towards women. And so as a Muslim, I have the absolute responsibility to do what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did, and that was to elevate 
women to the status for which they were intended to be. Um, and that, you know, in many cases require us to not only challenge the status quo in America, but even to challenge some of our ideals that happen within Islamic discourse or within the masjid. Um, and so that for me, the, the Women's March was saying that, yes, Muslim women 100% are concerned about your rights as as women and concerned about my rights, right? This is an, the intersectionality of where we we share we share this. And Muslim women shouldn't just fight for the rights of Muslim women. That's not the job of the Muslim. The Muslim fights for the rights of all people. And certainly, uh, um, I think what, what happens is a lot of people see if, if someone's speaking at a certain event or, or working with a certain organization, that doesn't necessarily entail that you are validating or supporting 100% of say another organization's platform that's the way a lot of this discourse is occurring where if you were at such and such event or at such and such uh, speaking with such and such person then that automatically automatically means that you endorse every single position that that person has which is just odd to me because it's just not the way reality works but so if i stood with christians and jews on martin luther king day no one would assume that i was a christian Right. And so I'm not quite sure why we and see this in and of itself speaks to that underlying issue about, you know, the underlying issue of of sexism, where if I stand with women for women's rights, then I must be a feminist. Right. Right. And I must have fallen off my marbles and lost my dean. But if I stand, you know, uh, for service or racial justice on Martin Luther King Day, well, absolutely, then I'm doing you know, what I should be doing. Or if I stand with Palestine, nobody's going to assume that I'm a Palestinian, right? Right. Or that I want to be a Palestinian. They will simply say she's fighting for the rights of humanity, as is the job of a Muslim. So I, you know, this ideal that um, we would stand with women of faith or women of no faith uh, on the on the rights of protecting women in this country, on, you know, saying no to sexual assault, no to a rape culture, no to that we are that we should be paid less than men or experience less health care or that. No, it's a matter of saying I'm saying I stand with you on these issues because they're not they're they're Muslim issues, right? They're they're Muslim concerns and they're concerns for me as a woman. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created me as a woman and I feel like who best to provide solutions to the problem than a Muslim. That's beautiful. Uh subhanAllah, I, I was as you were responding to the question that was uh, posed by Salim, I was thinking how you approach the uh, uh response in a way that is uh, more um focusing on the essence or on the issue or in our terms uh, within the Muslim construct on the maqasid of things, you mm. know, uh, not really on the, you know, uh, capsules or the shells of what uh, this event or that group or uh, this uh, idea is all about. And um, I wanted to uh, kind of uh, maybe in general, as we pull away from uh, this one issue to other issues, how can we focus the um, folks in general and Muslims in in specific to look into the essence essence of things and mm-hmm. to take their time a little bit to really kind of hold back. You know, uh, what are some of the practical things that you know when people kind of come up to you and tell you, "Hey, what's going on, Said Aisha? Why are you doing this? And why? Are you, what? How do you 
you know, try to divert the attention of the individual into the maqasid of things, you know, in general, mm. so that we're not talking about just about feminism or sexism or, or, or racism or anything else. We're talking about really like we're all looking after one thing that is more loftier than all these little, you know, issues. They're not little, but, you know, they're little compared to the, uh, to the goal. Mm-hmm. What's your general approach usual, usually? I mean, ultimately, I say to them, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says in the Quran, وَلْتَكُمْ مِنْكُمْ أُمَّةٌ يَدْعُونَ إِلَىٰ خَيْرٍ وَيَعْمَرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفَ وَيَنْحَوْنَ عَلَى الْمُنْكَرِ وَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْمُفْلِهُونَ which one of us does not want to be amongst the muflihun, amongst those who are truly successful, amongst those that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, has raised in rank. And so when someone is asking me, you know, about the isms or the schism, I just, um, that, that's, that's one thing, that we have to look at it and say, what can I do that will bring me closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but even more so, let's let's go back to the term. I, I'm I'm grateful that you use the term maqasid, right? Because when we look at, for example, the maqasid, the sharia, when we look at the first, we have a responsibility for the preservation of life, right? We have a responsibility for the preservation of of even heritage or, or, or weight. We can't do that without addressing these issues, right? Without addressing the isms. And so... Looking at that, even to say, I, I want to connect to the Prophet Wasallam in a manner that would, that he would be pleased to say that I'm from amongst his ummah. That, that on Yom Al-Qiyamah, that he would recognize us because we were the people who actually, um, who actually implemented his sunnah. Of course, from a, and not just his sunnah from an exterior standpoint, but that we were willing to do what he did for us. And that is to put some sacrifice Right to put some to put some of our sacrifices and some of our own our own selves to the test in order to to be, be to be a benefit to others, and so th- even just in in that basic principle, um, you know when we look at how Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam, you're talking about someone who not only assisted humanity. He, the earth, the animals, the trees, he's concerned about every living creature. Why? Ultimately, so that we can recognize, we can recognize the greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and recognize his gift to us. And therefore, we don't want to be bankrupt on Yom Al-Qiyamah. Say, Ya Rabbi, without a shadow of a doubt, you've given me way more than I could ever even imagine or know how to give to you. So whatever you have given me in my talent or my resources or my knowledge or, you know, or uh, people that you've allowed me to encounter, whatever I can use to give back to you, marhaban. Hala, you mentioned something beautiful here as well. Do you think that our approach as a Muslim community to the issues uh, in terms of labels and the externality of them or uh, the way they are, you know, more we are, you know, busy with the framework basically and, um, you know, we're not uh, talking about context or, or substance. Do you think that this... Uh, you know, obsession with the qushur uh, or with the, uh, uh, you know, um, labels of it stems from our misunderstanding of the sunnah itself, meaning that we are also uh, 
too focused on the externalities of the uh, of the sunnah as well we are focused on the little things we are focused on the labelings of the sunnah which are of course sunnah but they don't reflect the deep roots of uh, uh, the way of the prophet do you think that this is somewhat connected to it you know we are focused on the labels and whatnot because we are connected in a shallow way as well to the sunnah through labels and through uh, thobes and through hijabs and through a little... Is there a a connotation here or is there... I think there's a connotation for sure. Also, I think that in a broader context, I think that the way many times Islam has been presented to the masses is very physical, Mm -hmm. right? And it doesn't focus on the internal aspects. It doesn't focus on the development of the soul. It doesn't focus and just focus on, okay, if you've made your, you know, if you focus on your Islam, which are your five pillars, you know, and you have your Iman, you know, in order, you've got your belief and you've got your bodily actions, then your Islam is complete. But in reality, Rasulullah in the hadith of Jibra'il, when he's asked, what is, what is Iman? What is Islam? Well, what is Ihsan? And, you know, at the end of this hadith, he, you know, when Umar anhu goes back and, you know, he's searching for him. He says, do you know who that was? Allah and his messenger know best. He said, this is Jibra'il coming to teach you your deen. So in this last, this very last sentence, what we recognize is when he says he's teaching you your deen, all of those questions that he asked him before, right? Islam, wa iman, wa ihsan, that these are the things that compile your deen. So if you leave one of them out, then you have missed out on, on a large portion of your deen. So if we're lacking that spirituality, like I believe in Allah, make salah, but if I don't have hudur, wa khushur, wa ikhlas, then that salah may actually be blameworthy. So the same way that if, Without a shadow of a doubt, if we're if we're approaching our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this very external, just mental and external way, then of course we're going to approach all aspects of our life in that way. So whatever we encounter, it's going to be missing the soul piece. It's going to be missing the ultimate aim, right? That we're, we're ultimately souls in this dunya, having a physical experience. But this is going to be over in a blink of an eye, and we will go back to that reality, subhanAllah. So if we, if we have that understanding, whatever we approach, whether it's activism, whether it's education, whether it's philosophy, whatever, whatever we're involved in, in this dunya, we'll be missing that, the weighty, the, the weighty thing. It will be missing that connection. One of the things, uh, to your point, Sada, I think, uh, you know, when you were speaking earlier about some of the isms, like feminism, like your one of your criticisms of femi- feminism was about this gender construct. And what I thought of when you were saying that was that, in essence, uh, they took the soul out of that work of empowering exactly. and, and, and elevating women. And we as Muslims, it seems like we're, we do the same thing in that we have lost the soul of our tradition. And hence, so when we respond to uh, an ism of the day, uh, we are we are stuck in that lane of that frame of that ism, right. whether it's like secularism, feminism, and so we will either respond if we're against that ism, we'll respond with uh, either an attack or apologetics. If we're mm. in support of that ism, we will uh, either completely embrace it and put our the- own theology and tradition at risk, or we will try to Islamicize it in a way. Mm-hmm. Whereas opposed to, I think what you're saying is that if we embrace our Islam um, holistically in, in the, those three levels of Islam, uh, Iman, and Ihsan, that we actually transcend that lane and we articulate our tradition as something 
that's not contingent on any of these isms, not contingent on these frameworks, and we're articulating that prophetic message, which will embrace all those concerns and um, and address all those concerns of of uh, the rights of people. Absolutely, and I think when you say that the very last portion, the rights of people, meaning that. When I see someone who claims to be a feminist or who claims to be an Islamic feminist or who claims to be uh, whatever other ism, if I simply take them for their word, right, without recognizing what is the soul behind that? What is it that the human being, what is the aim of the human being with identifying with that particular label? Ultimately, their aim is saying, I want to I want to elevate the status of women. I ultimately am concerned with with women's rights. And had we as a community in all honesty presented this Islam in a manner that protected their rights and protected their souls, they would have never felt like they needed to grab that ism or run to that label or attach themselves to that philosophy. Do you see what I'm mm-hmm. saying? And so in our being able to see beyond not just the labels of society, if we can see beyond the labels that we put on people, that we would be a lot more embracing, that we would be a lot more loving and accepting and understanding your your aim is khair, right? Your aim is benefit. What you want is actually the same thing I want. We just have to figure out how will we go about achieving that. This level-headed approach, mashallah, that uh, I'm, I'm seeing, I don't mean to be, Salim, I'm not praising our speaker every time we, <laughs> but no, I mean, that, if I see at one point, inshallah, you know, uh, this one level-headed approach uh, of you uh, seeing something and recognizing the good, the bad, trying to centralize the issue um, and how you connected it, you know, uh, to you as a woman of faith. Do you think that the soul of it for you uh, came about because you also, as a woman of faith, uh, were connected to Islam also through a woman of faith as well, you know, who is a teacher, who is, uh, you know, and, and this might be treading a very fine line here mm. uh, in terms of, uh, you know, us, you know, discussing this because I know that I may be on, under fire here, but, you know, um, you became a better Muslima. Uh, understanding Islam, especially when it came to feminism or to any other thing, mm-hmm. because you were exposed, uh, you know, to Islam in a way that was very natural and through also at least one of your women, uh, one of your resources or sources of learning the deen was a woman uh, scholar or teacher. Do you think that this particular notion is, uh, you know, of some sort of a centralized? Uh, I think it's a great benefit. I think the fact that I had female teachers in my chain, without Mm -hmm. a shadow of a doubt, um, what I learned from them was a different perspective than what I learned from my male teachers. And that's why it's important to have both male and female teachers, not just as a woman. I think men also need female teachers. When we look at all of our scholars of old, you know, Imam Shafi'i, all of them, subhanAllah, had female teachers, you know, as a part of their as a part of their studies and who made to um, who was there to help mold and shape their understanding. So it's true that when you are when you learn the dean with the absence of that female perspective, you're going you're going to have a blind spot. Um, And the way, you know, and and sadly, to be honest with you, I would even go a step further. Allah help. Um, 
we have also we have also as a Muslim community, without recognizing it, have fallen into the trap of almost viewing Islam through a colonialist mindset mm-hmm. where and we have adopted a lot of their principles and is and 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 told ourselves that they were a part of the deen. So I think it's not just, you know, um, being a woman, but I also think the fact that being a black woman, being an African-American woman, you know, just to speak very frankly, also made me look at things in a different way because I'm able, you know, subhanAllah, to be honest with you, it it does give some benefit to be able to recognize colonial oppressive ideals inside of it kind of cloaked you know cloaked in something else to be to be able to recognize a wolf in sheep's clothing and so you know when when people begin to push ideals islamic principles under the veil, you know, with, with really what you're saying is that might is right, right? Or money is power. I can say, no, <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that's not an Islamic concept. And so I think um, having the day, having diverse teachers informs you and being able to sift through that, um, you know, being able to sift through some of the colonial mindset inside of Islamic discourse mm-hmm. also helps. May Allah give us tawfiq. I mean, um... so speaking of uh, uh, about spiritual teachers and, and the soul of things, uh, I wanted to get a little t- a bit into what you're doing today um, with uh, Baraka Inc. and and your work in the community. Uh, and your work is very much uh, um, revolving around uh, the the uh, the education and the uh, uh, with of youth. Uh, and, and I think uh, one of the things that we wanted to talk about with you, um, given your your, your experiences um, in a very you know uh, diverse community with people from different backgrounds, as well as your traditional training in um, in Tuskia and the purification, the sciences of purification of the heart, um, it'd be interesting to hear some of the, the challenges or the issues that you see, particularly with um, we're not talking about little kids here, but we're talking about like the teenage adolescent group. Um, see some of the, the challenges and issues you see in them as it pertains to the the tarbiya of, of uh, their spiritual development. Uh, it, what are some things that you've noticed or, or things that issues that you see that need to be specifically addressed and that you're seeing in your work? I think you hit it right on the head that when we're looking at our youth today, I think they have Islam has oftentimes been presented to them as a matter of you must believe this therefore you must do this without being taught or even allowed to question what are the overall um, what are the overall aims and what are what what are the internal aspects I can think about for example there was one particular student of mine she was she, at that point she must have been about 17 and she had been in Islamic studies. She had been in Islamic school for a very long time. And she said to me, she was like, Sister Aisha, what am I supposed to feel in Salah? Right. And I remember looking at her for a long time saying, how amazed that she had grown up 
inside the Muslim community, grown up inside, and never once did anyone ever tell her what what kind to seek a connection, right? That that was that that was a part of it. Um, and I've had many youth before that and after that, you know, talk to me about I don't, you know, I'm having difficulty making salam because I didn't feel anything. Um, and so again. In an age where they're being desensitized to so many things, right? Of course, just the overwhelming amount of images that they've seen, and you know the old, you know the constant social media and the constant things that are competing for their attention. I actually think that our youth are really hungry for their spirituality. I think they're hungry for that level of engagement and. And the development of culture around it, because one thing that's that's hugely missing is a culture, an Islamic culture that's relevant to their struggle. Right. Like many times, particularly, I would say teens that are being raised in the West, like America, the UK, that a lot of times their parents have a culture, but they don't necessarily connect with that. And and so as a result, they're either being told Either you connect with this culture that you really don't, it's, it's not so so much authentic to you because you've been living in, in the West and raised here, or you don't have an Islamic culture. And so it, it kind of just leaves this void for them. It leaves a vacuum that, you know, will get sucked up with uh, negative cultures and you know what's what happens in popular cultures and images and with music and with television and so it it has a heavy weight on their it has a heavy weight on their souls and one thing about it is that religiosity on its own won't cure it right and so we can keep telling them okay well you just need to make salah okay you need to read quran more you need to fast more but if we're not filling them with the spirit of why or what's the connection I'm seeking, then it's kind of, you know, Imam al-Ghazali, may Allah bless him forever, said that fiqh without tasawwuf is exercise and tasawwuf without fiqh is a waste of time, right? And so then you have teens who are saying, well, I'm not very religious, right? Because they have they have lost their faith in the validity of religion. They've lost their faith in, in religion as a as a, um, a tool to solve their problems or to answer their questions. So then they say, you know, I'm, just, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, right? And so then that creates a problem as well because that's kind of like a garden without a fence. You've got all kinds of weeds. You've got any, you know, you've got all kinds of things that can come and, and rob from that garden. And it, it, there's nothing to guard it and to protect it. And so what we have to do is to develop in our teens, what is the meaning behind your religiosity? And how do you develop your belief, right? And, and what are the things that take from it? And how do you protect yourself? Um, and how do you interact with this world? And more importantly, um, those of us who are older than them must be willing to listen and to understand and to help them develop culture based on where they are, right? It's not enough to say, turn off your, you know, your iPod, turn off, you know, stop listening to that. And we haven't provided an alternative. Stop watching that. 
and we haven't provided an alternative, nor have we developed their consciousness or their spirituality in a way that's going to fill that silence when they do turn it off, right? And so with that, we have a lot of work to do in in terms of um, our youth, to be honest with you. And when it comes to Baraka Inc., what we do is, is, is work hard to bring about an awareness of some of the things that I've talked about and to listen and for how we can um, not just educate, but also edutain. How can we, you know, how can we be there? How can we develop mentorship programs? How can we um, develop cultural programs and, and social programs that are still Islamically sound, but that give them an outlet for that? Do you find that in the teenager, uh, you know, that, that age, that uh, there are certain concepts of, uh, of uh, purification of the heart of Tazkiyah that should be introduced or uh, should not be introduced at, at a certain time. Like, I'm thinking, for example, you know, a lot of uh, what we learn in, in Tuskia is, um, you know, trying to subjugate the nafs, the, the self. Um, so you don't want to ennoble yourself or elevate yourself. Um, whereas uh, developmentally, say, as a teenager, um, you're in this, uh, you know, awkward uh, point in your life. You're trying to develop a certain level of self-esteem, confidence in who you are, um, how how do you tr- how do you sort of reconcile the two? Like if if in that like you're trying to make a, a teenager feel confident in who they're, especially like you know, especially living in, this, in the society that we live in, feel confident in who they are as a person, emotionally, intellectually, socially, feel confident in who they are as a Muslim, but also to the point where they're not um, uh, elevating themselves to such a point where, like a lot of, for example, our social media does to ourselves, that we still. Uh, you know, still try to institute that idea of you know, still try to keep yourself, your you know, that that um, that uh, subjugation of the nafs. Yeah, can those do, be too reconciled, or do you have to be like you know, uh, set one apart from each other until the teenager is a little bit more developed, and then then you start introducing that concept? Mm, I think it's a spiral, in the fact that um, these are concepts that we introduce at different levels according to according to their development, right? So without a shadow of a doubt, I even think when they're very little, we do, it, you know, we do build up their confidence, but at the same time, we're still training them about, you know, no, you can't have five cookies, right? So there right. is still a subjugation of the nafs, you know, um, but at, at the same time, teaching them a level of confidence. And then, of course, once they enter into middle school age, that happens on a different level, right? No, those those things we don't watch, right? right? But at the same time, teaching them about we don't watch them because they're beneath us. We don't watch them because you're more dignified than that. You you know, there is, I think these two things are not mutually exclusive. That to be, to be confident is actually necessary in order to approach Islam at all. That I actually have to believe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala believe that I was worthy enough to worship him, right? That I I have to believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala felt that I was worthy enough to even be given Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and that I was worthy enough to be able to implement that Allah believed in me enough that he said, I'm going to give you these, you know, these things, these pillars, and I believe you can do them. But I know you can do them. And that's why you're going to make salah and fast. And so I think it's it's the manner by which we're teaching them. Um, that's one aspect of it. And of course, 
it, that's why I say it's a spiral as we, as they get older, the understanding and the depth of these lessons, of course, intensifies and becomes greater. Um, but I think it's something we start from there small and we can continue to develop on that. Uh, when we uh, talk about, you know, uh, raising families uh, in our uh, communities, you know, we always, um, you know, talk about, you know, start with kids early with the dean and do this and do that, you know, make sure you send them to, uh, you know, uh, a Muslim uh, kindergarten and then a Muslim school and whatnot. Start early, start early, Quran, have the understanding, fiqh, etc. And then uh, we have this notion that if a good, which is a large, maybe the largest segment of Muslims in the West, if, uh, you know, kids miss that starting early phase, you know, they become teenagers. Uh, some folks tell them like, well, it's too late now. It's too mm. late to, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, talk Dean to teenagers. You know these guys are too grown up. Uh, they're too way out there, and it's too difficult to uh, you know. And I heard this mm. personally, actually, in more than one state. You know, talking mm. like in social gatherings and whatnot. And I wanted to you know um, maybe get your take on this. You know, uh, we have spiritual issues and problems with kids that are raised in Muslim families. Alhamdulillah, they've been sent since they were little kids here and there. They they were exposed to Quran. They were exposed to the basics, uh, even to the basics of spirituality. But then they have their own issues and we have to take care of that. Mm -hmm. But what about those who just happen to stumble upon, you know, a youth center? How do we, how do we welcome somebody who just who's just coming, where do you start? I guess is what I, what I want I think to say. If I could also add to Gaidar's question is that there's, there's just sort of this myth that we have of um, a child as a clean slate. Mm. Um, uh, the, the idea, like what you were saying, Gaidar, is that you know you have to start, told you have to start young and develop that pure aqidah and everything in those, that adab and has to develop and develop, but then, uh, so we have this idea that it has to be a clean. There's a clean slate, and then it just it just flourishes. Uh, whereas uh, if we're talking about say, uh, not even a teenager, it could be like someone in their twenties, thirties, or whatever. You know, they have a set of experiences, and, and let's face it, a lot of our teens, a lot of uh, people are dealing through with a lot of difficulties, trauma, social, emotional, and nobody is really a clean slate. I mean, even for for. For the person who say accepts Islam, like yes, their sins are forgiven, but that doesn't negate any of their experiences. So, so none of us are clean slates. But I think we have this myth that uh, if you're not a clean slate as a kid, if you're not a clean slate, then look, there's not a way really to to address that that baggage they may have. One of the things that recently uh, thinking about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi honoring of the one who helps the orphan is that many orphans are not those like cute little like you know babies right. they are they are people who have gone through severe trauma absolutely and the fact that he says that they're you know they're so i'm so close to that person i, I think is telling us that you have to be able to deal with that that baggage so to the question how do we how do we accept embrace and and, and help these these uh, these teens uh, who have uh, you know, who have not had that background or have had to deal with a lot of trauma mm -hmm. um, from both, a, you know, uh, from a faith perspective, because obviously we're seeing a lot of atheism as well developing, mm -hmm. uh, as well as just, you know, a, a, just a normal, you know, participant in, in society. Well, the first thing is, as it relates to your, your question is uh, layered, <laughs> let me say that. When it comes to do dealing with children, let's first start that, 
if we can plant seeds, um, I think planting seeds in, in, let's say, gently developing tarbiyah, which should be honestly play and storytelling and kind of there's some there's some some organic lessons that happen as a result of that. There, that is a time to plant seeds and definitely to plant the seeds of faith. If you're trying to teach them the high levels of aqidah at seven, Allah bless you. You know, may Allah, <laughs> you know, I think you may just be, you know, exercising your own, you know, frustration at that point. I think you just destroyed the whole 1980s. Exactly, right? <laughs> so, you know, that that's the first thing. I think there's a way and a method that we're not... Um, that we're not engaging our children as much as we could be. Like, for example, even Islamic games these days are only about wudu and salah. If you're going to play an Islamic game, then it just must be about teaching them wudu and salah as opposed to how about we just teach them good character? Are there things that we're teaching them about how to interact? Or even just the family interacting in and of itself with these games is, believe it or not, is Islamic in and of itself. Um, So I'm... You know, again, with that, when it comes to children, I think uh, without a shadow of a doubt, what we teach them when they're young, the seeds that we plant when they're young, do come into fruition later. Now, I became a Muslim as a teenager. Probably Islam was introduced to me when I was 16, when I was a full-fledged American teenager. (laughs) We'll just say that. Um, And uh, praying five times a day. And covering my hair and doing anything other than hanging out, going to the club, was not on my mind. But subhanAllah, also though, it was a time in my life where I needed Islam the most. And it was a time in my life that I was actually more prepared to receive it. And it's it's because at that it's in the teenage years that there's this it's it's very similar actually to the early years of a child where they're they're actually more open to guidance than most people think. They're actually looking. There's a certain level of um, looking for. Am I doing this right? Is is this the right way to go? And in the end. And a time of of severe emotional development, so that's the perfect time, in honesty, to kind of like, you know, um, bring Islam to them and really introduce them to their spirituality. Um, I know for me, and as well as many other teens, the, this Ustad Obeidullah Evans also became Muslim as a teenager, converted to Islam as a teenager. There are multiple uh, people that I can think of that came to Islam between thirteen and seventeen. Um, and it's it's also at that time where you are experiencing a lot of struggles with the family because you're trying to assert your own independence. So even when I became Muslim, part of me becoming Muslim, part of it was I have my own mind. I'm coming into my own understanding. And so I have the ability without my parents influence to be able to kind of read these books you know study this and make a decision for myself um and and mold and shape my own identity around that 
Um, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is this is a time when teens begin to experiment with a lot of different things. This is the time when they're experimenting in terms of, you know, substances and, you know, even what type of friends I should have. And because of that, let's say the fallout of some of those negative experimentation actually leaves them feeling a great spiritual void. And in and if it's not caught, if it's not if it's not if that child is not embraced at that time in their life, they could fall away. They could fall into depression and sadness and and fall away from God forever. So it is important at that time to embrace them without judgment, right? With understanding of you're at this phase, you know, at this stage in your life, and and to introduce Islam as a solution to problems and as a healing to your heart. Um, and as a, you know, a method of, of coming together, it's actually a, a, an excellent time to introduce community to them. Um, uh, I mean, uh, I, I want to just to lightly touch uh, on this subject, you know, um, uh, I think Salim alluded to it in, in his uh, line of question, uh, questioning uh, the other and just like quickly kind of to jump on it in this uh, you know Ujala. so the issue of atheism now since you mentioned you know um, you know that kids are in a perfect opportunity especially in their teenage years to you know kind of look for guidance they're yearning towards you know this kind of uh, you know manifesto being presented to them so that they can think in within that uh, framework and establish their identity, their individual, you know, uh, construct. Yeah, at the same time, we are bombarded, you know, as we live here in the West with all these, uh, you know, disconnect from anything that is uh, spiritual, from anything that is uh, connected to uh, the Dean, um, and uh, you know, sometimes in some of my, you know, discussions, you know, well, why do you think you're not? you know, so much uh, connected, you know, why do you think, like one, one question I had, you know, years back, uh, you know, it was like, so everybody's fasting. And then it was like, yeah, not me, dude, I'm not fasting. So why are you fasting? He was like, does it matter? You know, so, and then he revealed that he doesn't believe in God, you know, and, and we were like actually at the MSA. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it was kind of weird to me to receive that, you know, <laughs> within that if thought <laughs> of time, you know, right? and, you know, and, and I, I vaguely remember, but I remember that kind of question when he responded in a way that is dismissive, like, does it even matter? You know, I don't even practice do it or, and, and of course the whole online presence of atheism and the media and the whole, uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, they, they say that, uh, Islam is the fastest, uh, growing religion in the West, it's really not. It's really atheism, you know, and uh, and and that's what you know. Many researchers actually have uh, you know presented in the past few years. So, um, and of course, not just for Muslims, for everybody. But how do you, how do I just you know quickly, if you don't mind, if you receive somebody um, who's um, complaining to you about his son or and I know we're not looking to give pills and all of a sudden like you become Muslim or you become a believer but you know what is it that we can kind of what is the I guess progress uh, you know land landscape that we can talk about to approach this I mean usually what I find when it comes to atheism is that there was a lack of intelligent answers to their questions that's one thing 
The other thing is, it was the lack of will for somebody to get real. And what do I mean by that? Sometimes as Muslims, we pretend to be like, oh, I never had doubts. Oh, I never had questions. Right. And what was that like for me? We're not willing to, you know, um, strip back some of the layers of our own onions and say, I, I remember what that was like. And I remember, you know, and it, and you don't necessarily t need to rush with a whole bunch of aqidah mm -hmm. in that moment. Usually the dis the the desire to disconnect from God is it is because I already feel disconnected. And so I don't and nothing has assured me. There's no there's been no one to assure me of the comfort or the mercy or the interest of God in me. Therefore, I'm no longer interested in God. Right. And so then it comes and then we have, you know, the introduction of some philosophy at that right at that age where they're asking these questions. And then, you know, someone steps into that vacuum, steps into that space and says, well, religion is an opium for the masses. Mm -hmm. Right. And so and they start, you know, putting questions that they just don't have the answers to. So then it's it's almost kind of. Um, in an easy road in many aspects to say there is no God than to actually um, admit that the human being without a shadow of a doubt is in more need of their spirituality. Um, it's easier to say, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't get it. I didn't get what I needed. So we can just dump the whole thing in the trash. Um in addition to their asking serious questions about heaven and about hell and how, you know, how does God love me and yet create hell? These are some very real questions that we have to begin to study the answers so that we can be prepared to answer them. Um, it's, you know, again, in, in understanding, I think it's about human connection and meeting people where they are without judgment and being studied enough, not just in Dean, but studied enough on human circumstance to be able to uh, to to answer those questions when they're uh, when they're approached to you, because there are, there are a number just like there are a number of paths that lead people to Islam. There are a number of paths that lead people to atheism. Sometimes it was from an academic standpoint, a scientific standpoint. Sometimes it was, you know, from the lack of religion in their life or they didn't see the relevance of it. And so we have to, again, this this way, this path has to become relevant. And we have to to teach that. We have to, to make that um, relevant. It, we cannot seem elitist, which is a challenge with us right now, right? That we cannot seem that we are the elite. Uh, who have something you don't have and kind of, you know, snobbish, nor can we seem um, emotionally distant from from this way, right? Or emotionally distant from the human being, you know, sitting beside them. So it's it's kind of like, why would fasting matter if I never fully understood why, like, why does God need my fasting? I never fully understood that anyway. So, I mean, he doesn't, like, is, is it going to benefit him if I don't fast? It's not going to benefit the hungry person if I fast, right? So what is the point, right? These are the lessons we have to begin to sit down and to talk to them about what is the benefit of discipline, self-restraint, 
what is the benefit of of any type of training right what is the benefit of mind training what is the benefit of, of physical training what is the ben- you know what is the harm if i just let it all go that's a that's a real conversation right if i you know now i if i want to be a some kind of athlete i know i've got to go through training right but that's just a job what kind of human being do you want to be then we can but if we start talking about these lofty religious ideals like dude what are you talking about <laughs> so uh, you know unfortunately we're going to have to close soon but it seems like a lot a lot of things you're talking about is that, that the, to connect with Allah I mean there has to be this human connection as well with number one of course Rasulullah and then the heirs of the, the the prophets which are our teachers and scholars and then just you know all all of us in terms of especially as to our point in terms of um, with our teens and with our children and and with all people is having that that human connection um sort of to to to, to sort of close it out um when you're mentioning um, earlier about your travels to West Africa it reminded uh, Gaidara was was reminding me earlier um about a, a, a um, someone we had on a podcast last year it was a Dr. Bill Alware, who I know you're very mm-hmm. familiar with, um, who's done a lot of studies in in, in, in West Africa, and um, he he spoke about how a lot of uh, the the teenagers, uh, say like in Senegal, that uh, as opposed to where say here their heroes are like celebrities and so forth, but over there their heroes or the people that they loved and they just couldn't get enough of were these these teachers. This um, is true. This uh, is true. It'd be interesting to hear like your 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 thoughts on how we can bring that type of human connection with the right type of human, mm-hmm. if you will, that, that connection with our scholars, with the connection with the 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 awliya, the connection with just the good people in our community, how we can bring that here to to bring that that uh, that atmosphere that will allow our teen- teenagers to thrive. Culture. We've got to mm-hmm. develop Islamic culture. That's the difference. And I was actually spent some time in West Africa with Dr. Bilal Weir last year. And to see them wearing T-shirts like of yeah, Sheikh no. Ibrahim and Yas, yeah. right? Oh, really? That look like, so actually, look like screen t-shirt? prints of Biggie. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like the same way our teens like wear T-shirts are like Tupac yeah. and it's other rap cool. stores. It's cool to have a Sheikh. So it was amazing. Right. SubhanAllah. But I recognize mm-hmm. there are a ton of songs there's a ton of spoken word. Mm-hmm. There's a there's an entire culture that supports, you know, that um, that uh, that supports that love of their teachers. And so we have to begin to develop that. We have to de- begin to develop culture in a way that, you know, is not constant like Astaghfirullah, no, you can't do that. Astaghfirullah, you can't. Then what can we do, mm-hmm. right? And so again, somebody might say, you know, to put Sheikh Ibrahim, like for example, if we were to see one of our teachers like on some screen printed on a T-shirt, we might be like, I don't know, that might be yeah. sacrilege, yeah. right? Yeah. We right. might. Yeah, please don't put the Sheikh t- uh, on a T-shirt like Che Guevara. Please don't put the Sheikh on a T-shirt, you know. And mm. are you going to the masjid and pray like that? Yeah. Do you see what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And so, therefore, there's this stoppage. You know, there's the, there's always a stop sign at every, you know, at every step. And so, therefore, without realizing it, we're stopping their love and their growth and their development. Because what we saw is, like, how did they develop this love for it? Because it was actually translated into their modern context. Mm-hmm. Like, he was screen printed on a T-shirt, <laughs> right? And that just, oh, amazing. Lo Akbar. Even... Um, you might be too young to remember Flavor Flav, but oh yeah, no. Oh, okay, so you remember those big medallions, yeah. right, of Locks. the '90s, right? Yeah. The big clocks, yeah. but also like big medallions of, of different people. 
we're in West Africa. We're in Tuba. And this brother is selling us, you know, his different wares. And he's got about like 50 medallions around his neck. And each one of them are of a different teacher, right? That he's selling these medallions, subhanAllah. And I remember thinking like, this is, this, like I, I could just see us in the 90s, you know, with these big medallions that we would wear, whether it was of Africa or, you know, the clocks or, you know, even names. We had our names on it in gold, all kind of things. Yeah. Allah Akbar. What is this? This is youth culture. This is youth culture. And if we begin to recognize that there's a there's a portion in their development that says, how can I be proud of me and mine? Right? And that's how they, now when you're older, there's no way in the world you'd be seen with that big rope around your neck, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that medallion, but when you're young, right, it's it, it it's it's cool. That's what I want to do. And so how do we support them without the constant stop signs, right? Wow. <laughs> so uh, I guess we could start. we got to find the modern uh, or the Western equivalent uh, for an American Islam perspective of a T-shirt for right. something else. Though not, not the actual shape. And the truth is, our t- make it basic, make, make it cool. You have to make it cool, you, basically, and, right? And you know, again, I don't want to, um, it might be dangerous, you know, in terms of making some of our teachers like superstars. It may be dangerous, Allah help us. Sure, yeah. But I do think they need to become accessible to youth. I mm. think it's a matter where the youth need to to feel them. You know understand what I'm saying? The youth need to feel like they're for me and they're speaking to my issues and I can I can respect them because they're they're speaking to me and my level. Um and in addition to that the the teachers and the speakers have to be willing to listen to the youth. Right. Right? Well, it has to be a, a It's a two-way society. street. It's got to be a two and they have to be alone. And that's and that's And that's been the issue, right? Is that because uh, you talked about the danger of uh of teachers like, you know, being celebrities. Is the, the the problem has been primarily is that uh, they become a celebrity, but it's just a it's just a, a just a platform, and and they it's like a one way conversation, and the soul of it that that, uh, that connection, connection between the students or the t- the teenagers is not there. In addition to, I was going to say this: the teacher must be very careful not to disappoint the youth, because they're fragile, and so you have to be very careful that you are who you say you are, that they have to. They have to believe in you and you don't disappoint them. Because if they find out that you're not who you say you were, that is shattering to them in, in many, many ways. And so we have to be careful in our teaching of the fragility of their iman and the fragility of their state and recognizing that I must be a true example and I must, you know, ultimately for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I'm required to be exactly who I say I am and to develop the best of character. That's, you know, one aspect of it. Um, When we look at Rasulullah he didn't just bring this deen kind of like, okay, here's the Quran, you know, here are the pages of it. It's there in the Kaaba if you want to read it. Or you can come meet me at my masjid, right? He actually was there in the marketplace talking to the people, you know, at their homes, constantly engaging with them, having these human relationships with them. That's what we need. 
we need people who who are like Rasulullah who will actually come off of the mimbar, who will actually come off of the who will actually come off the platform and really be and eat and live and breathe and laugh with the people. Mashallah. Uh, unfortunately, we have to we have to um, bring it to a close. We could just keep on talking, but I want to thank Yusada uh, for for being on the show. Um, we definitely want you to to be on again. Hopefully, you can uh, we get to have you again and, and continue this conversation, which uh, Alhamdulillah, I hope was uh, very beneficial. Definitely was for me, and I'm sure for you, Vaidar, as well. Of course, barakallahu Thank you so much for inviting me. It was my pleasure. May Allah give you tawfiq and afiyah in all of your affairs. I mean, thank you to all our listeners out there again. To remember. Uh, if you're listening to us on iTunes, please uh, um, uh, give us a, a five-star review, leave your feedback. You can always visit imanware.com for uh, the latest podcast episodes uh, and the latest articles. Um, you know, we'd love to hear your feedback, uh, leave, leave, leave your comments, uh, and we hope to see you again in the next episode. Until then, assalamu alaikum, peace be unto you. As-salam.